0: Good morning, these things on my face I like to complain about, but they are this necessary evil because if I take them off, I don't get to see your, your faces, you're your blurry, I can't see how you're responding, I can't see who you are even, uh, it's important that I wear these because they, they, they enhance my vision, they help me see who you are, especially at a distance, This morning, we're looking at how Christ corrects our sight. We're we're, we're looking at how Christ, and and if you're listening, what what unites these passages together, giving a right interpretation. How do you interpret the times? How do you understand God's will and God's word? You see, we all have some processing mechanism. It's amazing how much information we're constantly having to download. That's gonna be constantly being pressed upon us. How, how do we interpret it all? How do we understand it at all? God is good to us. We're all looking for and longing to find some interpreter. Well, God Himself has come and He is His own interpreter. Christ has come so that we can understand God's will in God's world. This morning, we're looking at these passages, and we're going to see Christ came so we can repent of sins. That that is the big overarching declaration. But so much of it has to do with how do we live in this world according to God's will. If you just go back in Luke 12, this all began when a a brother uh, asked to Jesus, "Make make a declaration, make a decision for how my brother should share an inheritance. And Jesus goes and gives us many life lessons. Life does not consist of possessions alone. Life is more than possessions. Do not be worried. Do not be anxious. Be good stewards. Know that God's good pleasure is to be generous with his kingdom. And Christ assures us he will return. morning we're looking at Christ and his mission. We're we're coming back and we're looking at the end of last week's sermon. I didn't quite finish the the section and I want to begin again there in verse 49. Your first point is a question. What is Christ's mission? He comes and he tells us why he came. Jesus declares, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Notice there were those two verses. He's declaring what he came to do and that it's, it's still something upcoming. He declares, I've, I've come to cast fire and I've come to be baptized. There's a baptism waiting for him. Now, now, what do these two things mean? Because they, they have to somehow come together. Well, we could think about the fire, right? The Holy Spirit's going to come with fire. Fire is oftentimes judgment. Well, let's wait. What does it mean that he's come to have a baptism? Jesus is already baptized by John. Beginning of his ministry. And it was actually an unusual event because John the Baptist went out in the wilderness to baptize sinners for repentance. Repentance. When Jesus comes, John says, I'm not going to baptize you. You're the the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus said, you're you're correct that this is unusual, but it must be done to fulfill all righteousness. What I believe is happening there is that baptism, Jesus is already identifying with us in our sin. Jesus is already showing he's come to identify with sinners. He has no sin to repent of. He's a perfect human being. He's a sinless man. But but he's already coming in that baptism to identify with us as sinners. But here, he's referring to a future baptism that's still to come. I have a baptism to be baptized with. That's future. Some clarity comes from Mark 10, verse 35, because he'll actually tell us he likens the cross to a baptism. If the baptism of John the Baptist was foreshadowing his union with us, his uniting with us as sinners, the cross is where he, he cultivates that, accumulates it, he, he finalizes it. See, it's on the cross where judgment comes upon Christ for our sin. It's on the cross where, where he is punished being counted as a sinner for all of our sin. And, and therefore, we get to be counted as righteous because of his obedience. This morning, we look back at Jesus' baptism, how he unites with us on the cross, so that as we celebrated last week, baptism is how we declare we're united with him in forgiveness. Now, how how is that fire? Well, it flips the world upside down. Judgment of God breaks through in a way that it brings the peace of God to man. Our rebellion is forgiven. Our treason is forgiven. The, The fire that comes is waiting on Jesus because it brings us peace with God. A new order breaks in. To be very clear, Jesus does come to bring peace. Ephesians 2 tells us he is our peace. He's going to say in just a moment, 51, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. He did come to bring peace, though. Peace with us and God. He came to reconcile us back to God. We can confess our sins. We can be forgiven. We can be reunited and brought near to the God that we've hated and rejected. This is the good news of the gospel. Notice verse 51. He's teaching them right now. I've come with a fire. I've come with a a truth and a message and a mission that flips the world upside down. It isn't going to bring the peace on earth you're expecting. He did come to bring peace for those who believe with God, but not peace on earth as they're expecting. See, one of the things we have to remember in the the Gospels, he's constantly correcting a problem of understanding there's only one coming, not two. He's helping them see, I, I have... Come the first time. I've come to bring peace with you and God. I've not come to bring peace on this earth. I've not come, Israel, to free you from Rome. The first coming. Remove the consequence of our sin because Christ took it upon himself. When he comes again, there will be total peace on earth. Sin will be destroyed completely. In this first mission, the one we're considering now We see he did come so that there's a gospel that declares Christ is crucified for our sins. So he's come. He's come to be baptized, to be united with us, to take away our sin, to take away our sin debt, to take away our punishment. But for us, as we think about how we live on this earth, he's not come to bring peace in this earth. No, I tell you, rather, division. Division. Again, he's correcting a, a wrong understanding that, that that Jesus hasn't just come at this point to to bring about a one universal uh, family or, or or one universal government. They wanted peace as Israelites from Rome. Now, this is important for us as we think through Old and New Testament. It can be a little confusing. Israel was a political state. They were a biological people for the most part. And they were the people of God. I want to be clear this morning as Christ is coming and making it clear he is bringing division where Israel, the political state, the biological people, and the people of God, he's coming to bring a division that also divides those three things up. The church is no longer a biological people. The church is no longer a political state. We can see the clear difference in Romans 13. Paul says the state carries the sword. The church proclaims the scriptures. Yes, there's been many times in many places where the church and the state have united, and that has never worked out so well. You need to be careful how we draw one-to-one connections from the old and the new. There's a significant difference, and the new is better. Yes, we're a holy nation. But the focus there, we're a, we're a whole another kind of organization and institution that's set apart. Yes, we're a kingdom of priests. We're a praying people. The focus here is how Christ has come to divide many of the ways in which we're united with others to bring about a new kind of unity. The correction here is, Do not think I've come to overthrow Rome, to reestablish some grand ideal people of one nation that's now for God. Look at verses 52 and 53. From now on, in one house, the the, the most important structure, the the most important piece of the social fabric, the, the home. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Here, what is he saying? Now, I know what you're thinking. Keith, you just picked the classic Mother's Day text. Why would you do that? (laughs) We just preach through Scripture, and wherever we land, we land, and we've landed on some pretty awkward Mother's Day texts. This one's up there. What's he saying? Again, let's go back to Luke 12, verse 13. A brother was saying, make peace with my brother. I I need my inheritance. Jesus hasn't come for that kind of decision-making. He's not come so that he establishes dads who always just go out and throw the baseball with their son. Or moms who pick up kids from soccer, and there's a huge meal on the table. Kids who just happily and joyfully do their chores. Those things are good, but that's not why Jesus came. We need to be careful not to suppose and presume upon our ideals of family and say that's what God must be doing. God designed the family. It's good. It's part of the creation. It's important for the whole fabric of our society. God called men to be heads of household. God called women to be the helpmeet. God called children to honor their parents. The family is meant to be a place where God is honored in these different structures. Jesus is simply saying there's something more. something better. There's something that's going to divide even that most important social structure that God ordained. So little Billy, if he's the only believer, he's going to go through significant suffering. If a child is born into an unbelieving family and becomes a Christian, there's there's going to be some kind of suffering. There's going to be some kind of dividing away. It doesn't mean they disown the family or shun. No, it's actually discouraged. It's interesting. A pastor friend in China, there's a new convert. He's a college student. Well, the parents came and took the child away. I don't know if you can call that kidnapping. But, but they, they stole the child away, taped him up, threw him in the trunk, drove him home and abused him. Trying to get him to denounce Christ. There's a division in the family when someone comes to Christ and the rest of the family hates him. We get in trouble if we think the church and the state somehow are connected, united. We get in trouble when we think the biological family and the church are somehow united. Jesus is not deconstructing the family. He's inviting sinners into a new structure, a new family family of God. We call this the doctrine of adoption. We we call this God sending his own son to share his inheritance, to share his love with us. The church is meant to be a new family made up of all kinds of people that should not otherwise actually be spending any time together. We we, we love looking for other folks who who look like us and act like us, uh, have earthly commonalities, but Friends, the early witness of the church was that people of all wealth categories, people of, of a male female even, all came together in this one unique place. We're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We don't create unity of the church. God does. By calling us to His one family, our job is to maintain that unity. The church cannot be divided nationally, politically, made up of all peoples, all tribes, all nations. We are not seeking to divide ourselves in any way that Christ does not divide. It's very important we recognize Jesus has purchased people from every nation and tribe and tongue. Jesus has purchased people from every political group, Republican, Democrat, Constitutional, Wig, if they're even still around. Constitutional. Green. Rich, poor, master, slave. We, we, we need to make sure we understand Christ is purchasing all kinds of people. And we divide as we separate ourselves from the world and come together. We don't divide within the church. with Those things we like to have common with others. Christ is making this division so clear because it's the most central, even God-given organization, institution, the family. We we want to make sure we're preaching and teaching. There's an importance of the family. We want to make sure there's an importance of teaching uh, men to be godly husbands and wives to be godly wives. We also want to make sure we're not confusing these things with the church. Now, children, here we are, not because it's Mother's Day, but because the text. If your mother opens the word of God with you, if your parent opens the word of God with you and prays with you, be thankful. This warning of division isn't for you. This this, this is one of those situations where you believe and your, your parents are encouraged. Be thankful if your parents, especially your mother today, cares for you, reads with you, prays with you, asks for your forgiveness. She loves you. Parents, what an important challenge for us. Are we creating confusion for our children with the way we don't divide from the world or the way we try to create divisions within our church? The kids are watching. Are they confused about Christian commitment? The adults in the room need to make sure we're making sh- clear what Christian commitment is with our practices, with our words. We need to make sure we're dividing where Christ says to divide it, uniting where Christ says to unite. For those who suffer division, maybe your parents aren't Christians, maybe your siblings aren't Christians, maybe your children aren't Christians. I encourage you pray. Hold out hope. Resist the temptation to conform or somehow accommodate beliefs so that they might believe. No, hold out Christ in all of his power, in all of his love, in all of his forgiveness. Hold out Christ. I recall an interview with John Piper. And he was asked, what's the most impactful teaching he ever received? His answer was, my mom singing to me Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. This is not an anti-family teaching of Christ. It's a, an importance of bringing us together back into the, the trueness of, of, of God's family. And all the power parents have to proclaim that gospel. That's Christ's mission. Now we're going to ask a few questions on how we should respond. First, first, Why, why we respond? This is verses 54 to 59. He's come to be baptized. He's come to to not bring peace in this earth, but to bring peace with us in God. He's come to bring division in this earth, but bring unity with us to God. Why should we respond? This is verses 54 to 59. He now turns to the crowd. Now, again... Uh, two guys were asking a question from the crowd. He goes through. He speaks to the disciples, particularly Peter's confused. Or are you talking to us? He's now turned to the crowd. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and it so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there'll be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? It, it, Jesus is affirming their ability to see and understand what's going to happen on earth. You say this and it happens. There, there's an affirmation. Uh, we actually were very thankful for this kind of prediction that we've advanced in because Friday night, after we got the kids finally down, uh, uh, it was raining. And our phones start going off, and there's a prediction at 9:50. You're under a tornado warning until 10 o'clock. So we're looking at each other. We're gonna wake up the kids and go to the basement, turn on the local news. It's at that point the local news guy says, "People in this neighborhood, my neighborhood, get to your basement." We're thinking, "All right, probably not a sign from God, but that's specific enough." We wake the kids up, go to the basement. <coughs> it was pretty terrifying. It lasted all seven minutes. We can tell what's going to happen. Eh, sometimes it's supposed to rain all day yesterday, so I went. To, I, the, the rain prediction led to my deciding to mow, and then it was confusing. We don't we don't always get it right. But, but he's affirming here: you can see so much, understand so much, it happens. But you're hypocrites. We usually think of somebody who's a hypocrite who, who wears a mask. They're masquerading. They're pretending. They they say to believe one thing and they act like another. And also someone who's just contradictory, backwards. You have so much ability. You can see you. You're designed for this world to know what's happening. How is it you can't understand the present time? What is he asking? The present time is what he's getting at. With he, the promised savior, the Son of God is with him. It's important that he's. Kind of asking them, how, how do you understand how to interpret these things? But God's given you his entire Old Testament. God's given you all the understanding you need that sin is the problem in the first 39 books of the Bible. The, the books they had at the time. In all of God's writings, sin is the problem. And, and Jesus was the solution. Over and over again, God made promises. I will send a Savior. I will send a Son. I will send a Messiah. I will send a King. I will send a prophet. I will send a priest. And as they see Jesus and hear Him, they should recognize this is the guy we've been waiting on. And Jesus says, how is it you can't interpret the present time? How is it God's own Son is standing before you? How is it as creatures, the Creator has fulfilled all His promises, right now is the time to believe, and they're rejecting Him. How is it they're missing it? If you're not a believer, this is where I really want to encourage you and challenge you. One of the great arguments and one of the great evidences, if you're looking for an evidence, is God's own word and how God made so many promises over so many uh, generations, different continents, different languages, different prophets, different promises, so many promises, and they all come together in Jesus. I challenge you, just look at Psalm Psalm 22. It's the psalm that Jesus quotes in the cross. And one of the most interesting things is Psalm 22 says, his garments would be divided among them. This is what's amazing about that psalm. Jesus didn't fulfill that. The Roman guards murdering Jesus fulfilled that without knowing it. All those promises come to such Clear fulfillment. The things written beforehand, they come true. All together in Christ. If you want to know more about the scriptures, come talk to me or somebody around you. Let's read scripture together to see how all these promises come together in Christ. If you're a believer, how should you interpret the present time? I believe it's important we understand the present time Jesus is referring to is his actual present time. 2,000 years ago, the Old Testament was written with such clarity that when Jesus appeared, his people would not reject him as they did, but receive him. How do we think about the present time today? The New Testament is not written for us to understand when Jesus is coming back. How do I know that? Jesus says in Acts 2.7, it's not for you to know. Pretty clear. Right? Are you with me? Uh, the Old Testament was all promises that were supposed to come to that present time so that they could see Jesus. The New Testament's written so that we could look back and see He fulfilled them all. And to live faithfully, waiting, not knowing when He's coming back. We need to be careful not to get worked up by trying to understand what's happening and try to read it back in Scripture. No, God has given us all we need. His Word, His Spirit, his, his truth to be faithful. There's a big difference between the Old Testament telling us Jesus is coming, look, there He is, and the New Testament telling us He has come, He is ascended, He will return. And trust me, we don't need to have any interpretation When he comes again, there's no guessing or doubting he comes. He comes with a trumpet blast in all of his glory. And he brings righteousness, fully and finally, peace on earth. Why do we get this so weird? Why do do we labor so much trying to figure out how to interpret this way? There's a fellow named Edgar Wisenhan. He was a NASA engineer, pretty sharp dude, and a believer. He wrote a book in 1987 entitled, 88 Reasons Jesus Return in 1988. How many reasons do you think were wrong? <laughs> now, it's at that point you would trust an intelligent NASA engineer if just going through the methods he's learned as an engineer. Okay, well, maybe I'm approaching this wrong. Not Edgar. He did the same thing in 1989. 1993. And finally, in 1994. Brothers and sisters, we, we look at God's word, and the Old Testament was telling us, as God's people, who to expect. The New Testament tells us, yes, he is the one we were expecting and how to live faithfully. But when he's coming back, and how to understand this world? Oh, friends, the, the comforting words. It's not for us to know. That's relief. Is it not? It's relief. There's so much to know. But it's not for us to know when he's coming back. It's not for us to know. Oh, he promises there's going to be antichrists, false teachers. The church is going to go through wars and tribulations. They're going to be attacked. But it's good to know what we're not supposed to know. God does give us his truth. We should need to know him from his word. We need to understand the lies that are outside of this world. But Jesus tells us what we should know, what we should not know. Now, as we look here, he's correcting them because they should be seeing who Jesus is. Going back and pressing in, they should see who Jesus is, and there's a correction. And notice there's an immediacy to his conclusion. Verse 57. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. All right, he's picturing someone who's done something wrong. They know they've done something wrong, and as they're being judged, uh, being carried away to the, the magistrate, the, the judge, they settle. They pull the man aside and say, I, I'm wrong. I want to figure out how to settle. Otherwise, I'm going to spend my days in prison and then still have to pay the last penny. Notice he's saying that the wise person, make an effort to settle. Avoid the judgment. What does it mean to settle? How would someone settle? Well, we could think, let's just try to come up with random acts of kindness uh, let's try to think through all my bad deeds and, and, and try to write them and make sure we overdo uh, our good deeds. No, that, that's not the kind of settlement we're talking about. Because God is, Jesus is telling us, we're, we are going to stand before a judge. We're going to stand before a judge who knows everything we've ever done and not done. The, the court will be full of writing of all our misdeeds, of all our transgressions, of all our sins. And, and we'll be speechless we won't be able to pay any of it back. But the offer Jesus gives you is to settle lot of court. The well, way we settle out of court is by believing in Him. Believe in Him who died for all your sins. Believe in Him who can take away your sins. Believe in Him who removes from you your sin as far as the East is from the West. The call here, interpret the present time. See who Jesus is. See how He fulfilled all of God's Word in His death and resurrection. Believe in Him. Believe in Him. Today. Our next section is how to respond. Why should we respond? Because Christ has come. It is the present time. He has come to bring a fire, a judgment. There's a judgment to come. We must believe in Him. But but how? Notice this next section is interesting. and It's still connected here. There were some present at the very time. We're, we're still here in the same location, same scene. How much they're connecting what Jesus has said, it's not clear, but, but, but Luke's connecting this to our, our section. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The the, the conversation is is, is moved. There's folks who are asking, have you heard about these Galileans? They we don't know anything of this story outside of this actual account. But this sounds like Pilate. He was a vicious man. Apparently there were Galileans who went to worship. Pilate murdered them there so that their blood actually got mingled in with the very sacrifices they were coming to make. This seems to be a question of ethic. We we we, we don't understand exactly what happened, but. Jesus is the great interpreter. He he actually gets at their problem because he asks in two different ways. Do you think they're worse? Jesus understands what they're asking and why they're asking it. That's what's helpful about this text. Do you think that these Galileans were worse? Do you think that those who the tower fell on were worse? They're asking an ethical question. There seems to be an assumption here. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad people have bad things happen to them. If such a tragedy fell upon these particular people, well, they must have deserved it. This interpretation is what Job's friend was all about. Praise God, he's given us an entire book to tell us not to think like this. But here Jesus is especially telling us not to think like this. But notice there's an ethical understanding of the world. If something horrible happened to someone, they must have deserved it. We ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It's, it's the upper side of that coin. He challenges them. Do not assume that they were worse. Do not be self-righteous in your judgment to assume they must be worse than you if they've received worse. Even get back to that other example. Do not try to interpret God's judgment because of the tragedies in this world. They were not more worse. They were simply more unfortunate. Now, this is one of those texts that actually really stands out to me in my, my life because of when and where I first heard it. And the only time I've actually heard it preached. First heard it preached on September 13th. Al Muller opened up this text two days after 9-11. And it was extremely helpful. Because if you remember, there were many who were saying the people who died in those towers, that that attack was because of sinners worse than us out there. This is actually a warning against that kind of teaching. No, the, the, the sin we should be concerned about is our own. We're, we're, we're warned against the kind of self righteousness that says that sin out there is what God's going to judge. Now, look at the command repent or perish. Repent or perish. There's a correction. Do you not believe you're somehow better. The teaching all sinners will per- perish. All sinners will perish. The invitation, repent, turn around. The the invitation is to turn around, repent or perish. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. If we believe in Jesus, if we turn away from our sin, if we turn to him, we will not perish, but have everlasting life. The invitation to turn around, you turn away from sin, you turn toward God. How to repent. It's a word we get prickly around. Anybody else ever feel prickly around the word repentance? Just me? Uh, I've talked to somebody about it. You get prickly too. Because repentance is, is confrontational, but, but it's so sweet. It's, it's, it's inviting out. Repentance is necessary for healing, it's a necessary healing ingredient for the balm of the gospel. Because God doesn't just say, I'll forgive you of that sin, just keep drinking the poison. He says, I'll I'll bring you out of that sin. I'll bring you out of the guilt. I'll bring you out of the addiction. I'll bring you out of the pain. I'll bring you out of the trouble. This word is confusing for us because we have been taught, and even the church has has been taken part of the, the idea that whatever we feel must be right. Oh, no. Our hearts are full of Sin. Praise God, His Word comes to heal us, to confront us. Praise God, He does not leave us in our self-deceiving, dangerous hearts. But he comes and tells us, repent. Repent of rejecting God. Repent of ignoring God. Repent of being indifferent towards God. Repent of the sin that if you hold on to it, you will have to stand before a judge and give an account for it. Repent of the poison you drink. Repent. What, what sweet words. And oh, how difficult it is. If you're feeling the conviction to repent, I want to be clear. It, it looks daunting. It looks difficult. A, a sin if you're a believer that you might find comfort in. It, it's become a, a pattern. You don't know how to live without that particular sin. or If you're not a Christian, you don't understand how someone can live without that particular way of living. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. God, in his grace, helps us see sin. God, in his grace, calls us from sin. God, in his grace, heals us of our sin. Grace is what helps us overcome what we think is difficult. It's not too difficult to repent. It's too difficult not to repent. Not repenting is the dangerous way. Repent or perish. Repent or face your God for all of eternity with your sin still holding firm to and feeling the full judgment of God. Repent or perish. The last question we ask, Christ has come so that he might bring fire, so that he might bring healing, so that he might bring forgiveness by being united with us in our sin, uniting himself so that he takes the punishment so that we can now live the right life. Why respond? There's a judgment coming. How to respond? Repent. When to respond? When to respond? Is our last section. Jesus follows this up with a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Typical parable of Jesus. It's a clear teaching of Jesus. There's a man who owns the land. This is a wealthy man. He's able to have enough land to have a vineyard. That's a very expensive undertaking. He decides to put a fig tree in a vineyard. That's unusual. That's unusual. He plants a fig tree and he comes three years in a row. And if you plant a fig tree, what do you want from it? Figs. He's disappointed. Uh, land's a premium, especially this land. It's rich land. He, he has his vine dressers working on it. It's a waste of resources. Cut it down. He has a right. the right. And not just a vine dresser appeals. There, there, there's a There's a care for this fig tree. He is the one who's been pruning and feeding and wanting to see figs for his master. He said, give it one more year. I'll fertilize it. I'll dig around it, then decide. Now, time is very central. That's why we're asking when. Three years, that's that's patient. The appeal is only one more year, still patient. What's the interpretation here? Uh, It could be. The vineyard is all the nations. And the fig tree is Israel, who's supposed to be bearing fruit to be a witness to all the nations. And over time, over and over again, God has looked and said, there's no fruit. I'm going to replace that fig tree. I'm going to cut down that fig tree. That actually appears to be how Paul might interpret it, according to Romans 11. As we heard earlier, John 15, the Father is the vine dresser. He looks, and if there's not fruit, He cuts. there's, There's an immediacy here. There's an expectation that God expects fruit. Friends, repentance is fruit. Repentance is fruit. Denying ourselves of sin, taking up the cross ready for suffering, following Christ and His commandments. What we should be hearing today, are we presuming upon God's grace and not bearing the fruit we know he expects? Faith without works is dead. Faith without any fruit is a false faith. We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone. Well, we come to Christ simply by faith, and that faith then produces good works. It produces fruit. It produces repentance. Oh, the danger of presuming upon God's grace and delaying obedience. When will you respond? The answer should be today. If you're not a believer, Today. The Lord could to require of your life today. What, what, what is it you're hoping to accomplish between today and tomorrow that would say, no, I just want to put this off a little bit longer? He doesn't take good things away from you. He takes sin away from you. And he gives you his goodness. He expects faith that produces fruit. There's three things I want us to see from this fig tree. God expects us to respond with faith and repentance. He, he expects to see fruit. Two, God is so gracious and patient. God is so gracious and a patient. And three, we should not presume upon his patience. This morning, Christ's mission is clear. He comes to unite with us to save us. He comes to unite with us, to build a different kind of unity among us. He comes so that we can escape judgment, so that we can understand He is the one Savior who's come, and He's coming again. He comes so we can repent. He comes so we can repent today. Let's take a moment and confess our sins to our Lord and make commitments of what we will do today in repentance. Father, we thank you for the words we've already sung. Our sins, there are many. Your mercy is more. We thank you for the songs that help us to see your invitation come, ye sinners, poor and needy. All you need is to see your need for him. We thank you, Father, for such an invitation by your grace to know your God, to know our sin, and to know you remove it from us. As far as East is from the West in forgiveness, I pray we would stop trying to snuggle close to sin. We would distance ourselves from the sin that creates distance between you and us in fellowship. Father, give us the grace to hear your word, give us the grace to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing our closing song of invitation. Jesus, I come. Thank you.